0: Welcome to Getting Curious. I'm Jonathan Van Ness, and every week I sit down for a 40 minute conversation, but it's never 40 minutes anymore. And I can't help it because I got so many questions with a brilliant expert to learn all about something that makes me curious. This week we are re airing a very special episode with one of my very favorite people in the world, Dr. Jessica Ware, from June 2020, where I ask her Are cicadas partying like it's 2004? Welcome to Getting Curious. This is Jonathan the I'm so excited for today's episode. There is uh, a lot to digest and a lot to process in the world. And sometimes you just need to get into that science so you can just, like, keep learning, um, but just give yourself a bit of variety. So with that being said, welcome, Dr. Jessica Ware. You are an entomologist, an evolutionary biologist. You're a creator of the Odonata and non Holla Insect Orders at the American Museum of Natural History New York and professor at the Richard Gilder Graduate School. And this is also, I just think, one of the most amazing things, is you're the also the VP-elect of the Entomological Society of America and the president of the Worldwide Dragonfly Association. You got credits on credits with a side of credits all in caps lock, like with some other pretty funds too. So thank you so much for taking your time to come talk to us, Dr. Jessica. Where?
1: Thank you for having me. I got to say, if you call me and ask me to talk about dragonflies or insects, I will be there in five seconds because I think talking about insects is one of the best and most fun pastimes. Um, so I'm ready. I'm excited.
0: yeah, okay. I can't wait. So, okay, this is kind of where this episode started from, came from. This is why I wanted to have you on. So I think, you know, we were all in quarantine and then we started reading those articles about all the cicadas coming up in Virginia and like West Virginia. And then that made me think about this time in 1996 in Quincy, Illinois, like where I'm from and like my family had moved out to this farm. And I remember like the second week we got there, there was like, there was two garages and this like the second garage as we so called it was like covered in cicadas. And there was like, and they said that year was like uh, one of the like the every seven year ones, but ever, but I lived there for like, you know, another like what eleven or what's whatever a long time I lived there for like another like however many years till two thousand and four from ninety six so yeah, eight years, and I never saw them again, so then I read about these ones and i and I hear there's these seven year ones, and then there's these seventeen what what gives with these cicadas, what even are they, and why are they doing this like hibernation adjacent cousin of hibernation?
1: <laughs> I mean, in a way, they are really. Amazing, right? Because they do have either see a thirteen years or seventeen years. Maybe that's why you didn't see them because it's thirteen or seventeen. Um, so there's no seven. There's no seven, but there are. So there's two kinds of cicadas. There's the periodical ones that come out in these batches, right? Where like you described they're everywhere. You put you can shovel them up, you know. And then there are the annual ones, and their annual ones come out every year. So um, people sometimes get confused, I think, about which ones that they have, but you can tell them apart because the periodical ones, they, so they all have beady eyes, right? So they're very beady eyed creatures. Um, but the periodical ones have red beady eyes. And so that, and they're a little bit smaller. So maybe those were, those were probably the ones that you saw on your second garage. Um, and it's a really good strategy for them because they can avoid, so they live underground um, as nymphs and they suck on sap on, you know, plant juices. They suck on roots and rootlets um, and they molt five times to get larger until the, Soil temperatures around you know, 64 degrees, it signals a cue, and they all emerge at once. And they think that maybe the reason why they do this is so that that way they could just basically use satiation as a strategy. So they stuff the predators, birds or whatever, and hopefully most of your brothers and sisters get eaten and you don't, and you can mate, you know, do what you need to do to pass your genes on to the next generation. By coming out in such a huge number, um, only some of you are gonna get eaten because eventually the predators are full, right? And then the rest of you can mate, lay eggs, um, and then your babies can crawl into the ground and do what they gotta do.
0: <laughs> um, okay, wait. There's so much to unpack there. I'm, <laughs> but wait, I think before because like I we I gotta talk about cicadas more because I'm curious, but also you like Because you're an entomologist, which I think we learned on getting curious before in our episode about how can we be less rude to bees, is like that basically you're studying like insects. Like entomology is like all things insects, right?
1: Yeah, so I like all insects. I mean, I'm mostly, my specialty are kind of dragonflies and damselflies and then termites and cockroaches. But, um, you know, I have a graduate student that works on, so Hemiptera are the true bugs. Only... So all bugs are insects, but not all insects are bugs, right? So it's just this one order that are bugs. Um, and I have a grad student that works on, on bugs. So there's, you know, I think, wait, what?
0: <laughs> all, wh- who, all, wh- all insects, wh- give that to me one more time.
1: So, um, also there's 27 or so, 24, depending on who you talk to orders of insects. They're kind of these, these boxes, these bins in which we've tried to group like things with, the, with other like things. And, Um, One of them is called Hemiptera and they're called the true bugs and they're the only ones that are actually bugs. All the other things that are insects are dragonflies or, you know, um, uh, a beetle or beetles or yeah, or ants or whatever, like are are part of the bees, ants and wasps. But only the group that's Hemiptera are the true bugs. So you can always impress an entomologist if you say, oh, do you study insects or bugs? And then they're like, oh, wow, that's a very good distinction. I can't believe that you know the difference between bugs and insects. It's a good it's a good party trick. So
0: what are the distinctions? What what makes one one and the other?
1: Well, Hemiptera all have um, um, their mouth parts that are designed for sucking. Um, so most of them suck plant juices, xylem. Um uh or phloem, but um some of them actually are modified to suck blood like assassin bugs and things like that, um but so their mouth parts are like a little beak it's called a rostrum and it looks like a little pointy straw, and it kind of points down towards their belly, and then they just kind of stick it up and poke it into the uh to the plant material, or in the case of things like bed bugs, they stick it into you uh to get your your blood
0: <laughs> so a hemiptera is a bug, and then sucks. insects are and then insects are insects
1: yeah so hemiptera are a kind of uh, are a kind of insect um,
0: but they're the only true bugs
1: yeah the only true bugs yeah
0: so in order to be a bug you have to like suck
1: <laughs> to be a bug you got to suck yeah no you have to you have these sucking mouth parts with a rostrum this like kind of beak with the straw that kind of points downwards towards um, your belly, uh, your abdomen, and and you suck either. You know they've they've evolved over time to suck lots of different things. But I think the ancestor, ancestral state is that they were drinking, you know, plant juices.
0: But your favorite slash specialty is dragonfly, damselflies, cockroaches, and who? And termites. So. People for a long
1: time thought termites and cockroaches were really different, but it turns out termites are just like a fancy version of cockroaches that are social. So they have kings and queens and workers and soldiers that work together in a colony, but they're really just cockroaches. They're just like a specialty
0: version of a cockroach. So uh, it kind of makes sense. So cockroaches aren't social? No. Like the classic New York City cockroach, like there's no sort of hierarchy there. They're just all on their own eating stuff.
1: Yeah, they're just living their life, you know, Mating, eating, dispersing, but with one goal in mind: just passing on their genes. Whereas in in colonies, like in the in things like termites, um, they have altruism. They have you know collective behavior and sharing and uh, you know group effort for a common goal and stuff like that, which the average cockroach doesn't do.
0: This is the thing I realized after interviewing scientists for some time. To me, because I'm so not a scientist and for anyone listening like we're all just like oh my gosh tell us everything but then I feel like sometimes scientists are like well I really am like all about this but then like to me I'm like well honey you can speak <laughs> to all this stuff because like you're literally a doctor like so yeah so that's just so fascinating but then I'm remembering that I was curious about cicadas but now I want to hear about like all of the things that you like specialize specialize in but then I also know that like I'm a journalist adjacent person I'm trying to learn about cicadas so I just have to focus so basically <laughs> I'm just having rhetorical fireworks and I'm telling you about it so oh my god so a cicadas, now, because you also are an evolutionary biologist, which means that like, doesn't that mean that you study like evolution?
1: Yeah, like people who are entomologists really can approach it from different angles. And a lot of people who do entomology do it for pest control. You know, they want to protect our food stores. You know, we, we like food, food tastes good. And pests also like food and they want to eat our crops. And so a lot of entomology is dedicated to kind of managing pests that would otherwise, you know, invade homes, invade crops, and what have you. But those of us who are evolutionary biologists, we're kind of looking at insects from the different angle. We're not really trying to kill them, necessarily. We're trying to, you know, study what's happened over the last 400 or so million years, uh, which is about how long we think there's been flying insects. Um, What's happened? Like, what made them, what made there be so many different kinds of insects? We think, you know, there's over a million species of insects that have been described, but there might be, 10 million, 5 million, 30 million. A lot of people have suggested, you know, huge numbers of the potential number of insects that are out there. And so we kind of try and do like a little bit, you know, explore your stuff. You know, you travel around, try and describe new species, see what you can find. And then for the ones that we do know about, we try and, you know, reconstruct what happened over their evolutionary history. What happened over the last, you know, 200 million years or so. Why do we have some species here and other species um you know, in a different location. Why are some things in the tropic and not in the Arctic, or why are some things in the Arctic and not in the tropics? You know, things like that.
0: It's pretty. Fun. So with, the, I it, yes <laughs> okay, but wait. So with cicadas. So like, in and, and then like in the evolutionary sense, because once cicadas like are reach adulthood and they're like you know out you know swarming swarm and everything and eating all the crops and stuff, they fly right. Like, don't cicadas fly?
1: Yeah, so cicadas, cicadas fly. Um, they have like very um, rigid and stiff wings. Um, they're members of the in, the group of insects that have wings. Um,
0: and um, uh, there's three thousand species or so of cicadas. So there's a lot of different species. What? How many are annual and how many are periodical?
1: So we actually, so there's three thousand species globally, but we the periodical ones are only in
0: the United States, which is what? Like mind blowing, right? They're only here in North America are you sure are we sure i mean but because but, but because because you know how you were part of those people that found the, you found that one chinese you were the person who had to like say like oh yeah that's that one special beetle in 2013 i was reading that article oh, the roach, and, yeah and,
1: the roach one
0: the roach yeah so do you think that there's a chance that maybe like someday they'll find out that there are cicadas like maybe that were hiding out like in like chernobyl or like some rural part of Mongolia that we just haven't been to yet? Or what about the Amazon?
1: Well, it's true. I mean, we do find new species all the time. I feel like something huge, like periodical cicadas, where they come out in thousands and thousands, some human would have noted and said, like, hey, just so you know, there's thousands of cicadas
0: here right now. I feel like we would have had some notes about it. Um, but still, like, there's... So what are the in things in Africa the- eating all the all the things right now? Oh, Isn't there, like, like something good. eating a bunch of crops... Yeah, oh, those they're, are locusts. Locus.
1: Yeah, they're close relatives to, to Hemiptera, but they're not Hemiptera. They're a different group called Orthoptera. And those are, oh, talk about cool, those are really neat because they, they, they can either be um, swarming or they can not be swarming. And it depends on whether, as juveniles, they're in crowded conditions or if they're in solitary conditions. So if they're just eating their grass and chilling and not around a lot of uh, other uh, locusts, then they don't do this swarming behavior and they have green body coloration. Um, but then if they um, are in, in large, you know, groups, if they're grown, you know, or raised or reared, uh, there's someone who's done a lot of research on this Ho Jin Song. If they're reared in large groups uh, where it's very, very dense, then there's like a switch that turns on. They have a black form and they are locusts, like the ones that you hear about from the plagues that like swarm and, you know, consume everything. They have voracious appetites and, dispersing and it's a real problem (laughs) and there's
0: one of those one of those like events is going on right now and somewhere in Africa I think and it's like it's like really creating like a a food threat like a food source threat I don't know I I literally just was reading about that like accidentally like yesterday completely unrelated to the prep for this interview but do you know about that thing
1: yeah it's actually really very serious because it not only I mean like I said uh you know we are kind of competing with them for food sources but even even just like so that that's the primary threat but of course it's also just a giant nuisance i mean they're like swarming they're all over people's houses you open your mouth they're kind of you know flying at your you know why
0: how did they get like that like from the evolutionary standpoint like cuz it's like a natural disaster or whatever like how did they start and like how to, and with the guy that studied it like how, why do sometimes they get all together How does that even happen? Is it kind of cicada-ish that like there's a concentration of a bunch of locust eggs?
1: Well, yeah, I think what happens is a population density just gets higher and higher and higher until it reaches the threshold. And then they do the swarming behavior. So if you think about it from the perspective of the locust, it kind of makes sense, right? Because if you're really, really densely packed, you kind of want to disperse. So that way you can spread out and you're not all going to be competing and eating the same resources, consuming all the same food, taking up all the same space. So- over a long period of evolutionary time, that may have been a good strategy that you know if your population gets really really dense, that you could have a switch that triggered for you to kind of move on and disperse. Um, I always try and think of it from the perspective of what could have driven the insect to do it because we always think of insects doing these things to us, but of course, all of these things all of these behaviors evolved, you know hundreds of millions of years um, or at least you know a tens of millions of years before we even got on the scene
0: (laughs) oh my god that's so interesting to think about because we always think about how what they're doing to us but really like they're just trying to live and like you know live their best Darwin like growing expanding life probably but the next question that I'm about to ask you will take like 30 minutes to answer (laughs) and like could literally talk to you forever so we're just going to jump off and take a really quick break and we'll be right back with more Dr. Jessica Ware after this so how do you get through a locust infestation plague or a cicada? Like, what's like the life cycle that makes it end? Well, I
1: mean, with cicadas, eventually, I mean, there's kind of like a time, like they all kind of emerge. Um, most of them, you know, or many of them are eaten. Um, some of them don't uh, get eaten. They mate. Um They lay eggs in kind of the crevices of bark, um, and then the eggs hatch, the nymphs, you know, drop down to the ground and crawl under the ground, and then you don't see them again for either 13 or 17 years, Um, and that's kind of how it ends, right? It's kind of relatively predictable, although with climate change, it's becoming less predictable because some of them are emerging early and what have you. But with locusts, it really, I mean, the best thing you can do is, is manage them with, with uh, integrated pest management, um, which could be a combination of biological control or insecticides or what have you, because you need to secure food for humans. Because without, it's actually like a, a crisis uh, that can lead to to famine. But otherwise, if left unchecked, eventually it will just die out on its own because um, eventually there many of them will die. Um, the resources will be used up. Um, and then the population numbers go down. When the population numbers are low, they don't do the swarming behavior because then there's a switch, and it's like, oh, actually, I've got lots of space. There's not really anybody around me, and then they're in this other form, the green form, the non the non swarming form.
0: Um, I'm I didn't realize I was gonna like struggle so much with talking about cicadas specifically because I didn't know how curious I was about all the other bugs that. <laughs> there are and that you know about. So with locusts, how, or how long do locusts live generally? And how long do cicadas live generally? Like what's their lifespan of like adulthood?
1: Oh, well, I mean, for most insects, the lifespan of adulthood can be weeks or months. Um, They're oh. really not that, that long, even for dragonflies. I mean, they have one hot summer to do all the jobs they have to do. <laughs> Find a mate, you know, like make babies uh, and stuff like that. But, um, But in all of these cases, they can have a a much longer juvenile stage. So they go through these, uh, what insects do is they, every um, months or years, depending on the insect, they basically shed their skin and have a slightly larger version of themselves, um, at least for these insects that we're talking about. Um, And so for dragonflies, for example, they can be, you know, six weeks in the water or five years in the water, and then they emerge as an adult. For cicadas, especially the periodical ones, the periodical ones might be, at, you know, molting every five years uh, for 17 years, and then they emerge and have one hot summer to do all the jobs they have to do, you know, mate, reproduce, you know, lay eggs, uh, disperse. Um, and the same with locusts, you know, locusts are kind of continually molting from in the juvenile stages until the adult stage. But then the adult stages are usually, you know, one hot summer's length, to kind of get all the jobs done so, and then.
0: So all those bugs as we know them, like cicadas, um, locusts, dragonflies, they never live for like two years or like what like there's not like some grandmommy or granddaddy or like maybe non-binary dragonfly that is like three years old or like a really old one.
1: Well, they are, they're multiple year old, they're multiple years old, but like the, it's, it would be as if,
0: you know, you were a teenager. Well, no, I mean, as an adult, I mean, I, oh, yeah, not adult. the, not the cicadas. Cause I get that, that the cicada is like when they're the little, yeah. the little, whatever they are on the ground. So I got to ask about that later. Cause I'm curious about what that is literally, but, um, but there's never like an adult one the way that we know. It. Like there's not like an adult dragonfly or like an adult cicada or like an adult grasshopper. Like none of them in their adult forms ever last more for a, than a summer. Can I get a six month old grasshopper? Can I get a one year old cicada that's like been thriving out in the wild for a year as an adult? Or no, it's always the summer. That's just how it is.
1: Yeah, it's usually not not more than a few months. I mean, there have been a few cases where they found, uh, I know someone, Melissa, she found a damselfly uh, with her colleagues in Colombia that had fungus growing on it, which means it probably was at least a few months old. Um, but it's kind of, sometimes can be hard to, to guess how old they are. You can kind of look at how tattered their wings are because their wings kind of start getting shredded. Oh, and certainly here in North America. I mean, they're not going to live more than, you know, at least until October or so, because, uh, in New Jersey, New York, uh, it's going to get cold and then they you know, the temperature will get them.
0: So, oh my God, wait, mold. What was I thinking about the mold growing wings I'm really shook by the wings getting tattered that oh, did yeah. not occur to me yeah um uh, oh yeah so I was reading this other article when I was researching for this about like how I um I read so many articles I can't remember which ones were about you and which ones were just about insects but I was reading how the like they there's evidence that like the damselflies and the dragonflies were the first things to fly like 406 million years ago yeah that's so right. but I didn't know what it, what is a damselfly? So I guess they still exist because your colleague found one. I guess I never heard of one. Where are they? What are they?
1: Well, you probably have seen dragonflies and damselflies and just thought that maybe they were the same thing. So I have a prop actually to show you. So this is a dragonfly, right? And it's uh, kind of stocky, thick bodied. And usually they hold their wings out to the side when they land on something. And damselflies, I'm not going to show you one because they're teeny tiny. Uh, oh. they're not all teeny tiny, but they're very slender. They have very slender bodies, which is why they're called damselflies. Cause maybe that's it. May sexism, maybe the patriarchy, I don't know. <laughs> um, but they have very slender abdomens and they tend to hold their wings behind their back. And not all of them are blue, but in North America, often the ones that you see are blue in color. These like little thin blue things by water. Um, whereas dragonflies, they're kind of the stocky, you know, meaty, they often fly, you know, some dragonflies can fly really fast, like 30, 35 miles an hour. Uh, So their their thorax, which is this kind of chest part of their body, uh, it's just all muscle. You know, it's just really, really powerful flight muscle um, for flying. So you've probably seen damselflies and dragonflies, but maybe just thought they were the same thing. There's 6,000 species of dragonflies and damselflies. 3,000 are damselflies and around, you know, 3,000 or so are dragonflies.
0: And we find those all over the world?
1: Yeah, they're found all over the world. And we have over 370, 400, close to 400 species, I think, uh, in North America. So even New Jersey, which I'm not from New Jersey. I'm from Canada, but I've grown to love New Jersey. But New Jersey is not necessarily known for being um, nature's paradise, right? We have 188 species here. 188. That's a lot. I'm very impressed by New Jersey's dragonflies and damselflies. <laughs>
0: I will say that I, when I was filming in uh, uh, Philadelphia for Queer Eye, I drove through New Jersey like, you know, twice a week, like going from New York City to Philadelphia. Obviously, Philadelphia is in Pennsylvania, but you drive all the way through New Jersey. Yeah. And it's a b- absolutely beautiful state that I never really got to see very much of. And, and obviously you're on a highway, but still there's a lot of just like really beautiful, you know, naturey marshy views yeah. and and stuff that you would imagine there'd be a lot of uh, bugs. So that's really interesting. Okay. So now uh the group, like the, why, why we came. So, which I just, I literally could talk to you for 17 hours about bugs. I'm, I'm so shook, but I want to talk about cicadas. So they're only in North America? The periodical ones.
1: So the yeah. annual ones, you know, worldwide. But yeah, the periodical ones are only in North America. And there's a woman named Chris Simon. She's at University of Connecticut. She's done a lot of work. Her whole lab focuses on this group. And she thinks that probably there was like one brood around 10,000 years or so ago uh, that just because of you know, at the end of the last glacial cycle, um, because of, you know, as, forests kind of changed in composition and humans have modified forests, you know, so we can create our cities and our towns and stuff. These, you know, population got isolated into these 15 or so different broods uh, that started, you know, because of timing, uh, because of temperature, uh, kind of diverged to have these 17 year, which are mostly the ones that are in the Northern part, uh, in the mid Atlantic states are the 17 year cicadas and then there's the 13 year cicadas which tend to be you know alabama like some of the southern southern parts of their range
0: so which ones do you think i expect because my hometown's kind of like right smack in the middle of illinois like north south wise but then we're on like the very western bit um so it's kind of like in the middle like do you think it could have been either one
1: well, you know, I don't actually know which one it is that's it, in Illinois, but there is, there's a website, it's called Magic Cicada, and you can look up the broods for your state um and it will tell you the dates when they're going to be emerging the years like predicted 10 years out like when you can see these because it's actually like a hobby like for a lot of entomologists and non-entomologists who like love to travel places to see these emergences so they have these beautiful tables they show exactly where in each state each of the broods are uh so we could we could look it up
0: Oh my god okay so wait so then we were talking earlier about like the life cycle like what's that whole thing like? And and then the, the molting is just when they go from like one thing to the next. But like I don't. What are the life cycles of them? Like nymph, like baby nymph, yeah, big nymph. What happens? So it's so
1: neat because insects have two different ways of doing it, right? So uh, you think when we think of things like the hungry caterpillar, right? That is what's called a holometabolous insect. It has complete metamorphosis, so it goes an egg and then a larva, and then a pupa, and then an adult. So in the pupa, everything gets rearranged, and then they emerge as a butterfly, and the butterfly looks totally different from the caterpillar. But the things that we've been talking about, like termites and cockroaches, or cicadas, or dragonflies, they don't have that type of, of complete metamorphosis. Instead, they have these, like you said, an egg, and then a nymph, and the nymph usually just looks like a small version of the adult. Um, and then they mold into a, a slightly larger skin, um, a certain number of times, different insects molt different numbers of times, um, until eventually they're the adult size, and then that's the final molt, and then after they become an adult, they don't molt again. So the so life cycle is, can be really uh, funny, uh, like if you have something that's aquatic as a baby, like dragonflies and damselflies are aquatic uh, when, they're, when they're nymphs, so they swim around in the water, um, and they look really different from the adult, but technically they're still the same idea where it's an egg, then a nymph, no pupa, and then an adult.
0: Okay, so that's what I was... Because that is what was confusing me about. Because I was like, okay, holometabolous, I remember that word. So basically the difference there is, is that non-holometabolous ones are ones that basically like don't completely rearrange themselves. And holometabolous ones are ones like butterflies or... Um,
1: the caterpillars
0: yeah yes but basically but the even the non hollow metabolous ones because that's i i don't i've never seen a baby cicada so basically the adult cicada once it finds a mate and once the mom gets pregnant it lays or she lays the eggs in tree bark
1: Yeah, so usually what happens is insects are fascinating, right? So females, uh, in a lot of insects, they can store sperm, and they can store it for a period of time. Um, So usually what happens is males will transfer sperm to a female, and then she'll do her magic, right? She'll get the sperm into the egg as it passes down the little slide that's her egg-laying device, and then she'll put the eggs into the bark. Um, And then they hang out there for a little while, and then the eggs hatch, and the nymphs kind of drop to the ground and then crawl into the earth. Um, and some of them make sort of, for cicadas, some of them make sort of tunnels, some of them make little burrows. They're mostly drinking, I mean, they're only drinking xylem. They're, they're drinking fluid, right? Sap. Um, so their anal, this is, I don't know how real we want to get here. We
0: wanna- I want to get yeah. so fucking real.
1: Okay, <laughs> so they, their anal secretions are just liquid, right? Because they're on like a liquid diet. They're on a juice fast. So they're basically in these little like mud Uh, areas under the ground just kind of being bathed in their anal secretions (laughs) as they drink the sap. Um, And that's their life for 13 or 17 years.
0: Really quick question because this is what I'm curious about because that's what I can't imagine. So the mom has the sperm in there and then her little baby ovules or whatever like pass through and then it gets like, it makes itself into a little egg and the egg goes in the bark. When the egg hatches and it's the nymph, the cicada nymph, because an adult cicada looks like a what right so that's a good
1: uh, that's a very good point so adult cicadas have wings um they have these little beady eyes they have these long wings um and they, they have look kind of grasshoppery well they are but their legs i mean they, they're all insects have six legs so they have six legs like a grasshopper but they don't have a really big grasshoppers have the really big hind leg for jumping and and cicadas don't have that so they just have kind of six spindly legs But as juveniles, they do not look like that. So they do not have big wings. Um, They don't have wings. So instead, they actually are modified for their lifestyle, right? It wouldn't make sense to have wings and then crawl around under the earth because your wings would get torn to the shreds. right? So instead, they have a very, very hard exoskeleton, um, and they have their... Front legs are modified for digging. So they have these kind of claws uh, that are, are spines that they use, can use to kind of dig into the ground. Um, and and then they're very smooth over their back, really, because they're just underneath the earth. And then when they emerge in their last molt um, to the adult, that's when they you see them with the wings and, you know, the cicada look that you know and love that, that you're used to seeing as an adult.
0: So, did, so do they always fall off the tree bark into the ground or do, you, or do some crawl down and some fall down or is it kind of both?
1: I think it's kind of both. I mean um, especially with the in the case especially in the case of periodical cicadas, it's frenzied right It's frenzied and whatever works I think to get you into the soil so that you don't get eaten um, do it you know that probably is selected for whatever uh, behavior gets you into the soil um, quickly after you emerge so that you're not eaten by a predator uh, probably would be selected for by natural selection.
0: How can you, can, is a, is a nymph cicada big enough for like us to see it? Like, can you see it come out of the bark and go down? No, they're. I mean, may, maybe other people could, but they're very small. I have, don't have the best eyesight. So
1: small, like the first instar, which is what, what we call the the thing that emerges from the egg. Um, first insides are usually very, very tiny, Um uh, so they would be, they would be hard to see. I mean, I guess it's also just unlikely that you would notice them, but certainly you will for sure be able to see the final one, the one that crawls out of the ground that m- emolts to the adult. You'll sometimes see them. They're kind of brown. They look like they have a hunchback and they'll be attached to, you know, tree bark or a shrub and you can see them. And I've so we'll, seen that. Yeah.
0: Yes. Yeah. I've se- I-, I saw those like covering trees. Yeah. And it's just like their last shell. Yeah. And then they must be like flying around.
1: Yeah. And you can see the seam in the back where they uh, kind of rips open and they pull yeah. their body out. When they do that, um, basically like their entire gut lining and the lining of their trachea, which is with which, from which they breathe, it gets ripped out too. So sometimes when you see those little shells, you see these white stringy things sticking out the back. And that's what it is. It's like the inner, inner part of their breathing apparatus has been ripped inside out as they kind of pulled themselves out of this this juvenile state into Cause adulthood. Because then there's
0: like a new breathing apparatus that got built on the inside that whole time, so they just don't need that old one? Yeah. And it just gets like pushed out from the inside or something?
1: Yeah, it's just the lining of it. So the actual structure, the, you know, the little tube is still there, but the lining of it is what gets ripped out. What a way to go.
0: <laughs> well, I can't even On that. note, we're going to take a really quick break. We'll be right back with more Dr. Jessica Ware after this. Welcome back to Getting Curious. This is Jonathan Van Ness. We have Dr. Jessica Ware. So, so yeah, so the, I, I have seen a lot of those bugs or a lot of the cicada, uh, the last molt on trees, but would you also see those on the ground sometimes because they might emerge out of the ground too? Like, would those be like on the top of the soil?
1: Yeah, sometimes you see them there because they've just, that's just where they've chosen to emerge, but also sometimes they just fall off of the bark um, or the shrub and then they land on the ground. Um, I have kids and like my kids see them all the time. They're like, oh, what's that? Um, so they're they're definitely noticeable around the bottom part of the base of a tree.
0: So then basically once they hatch and they're adults, like they're flying around cicadas, they just have to find a mate, reproduce. Yeah,
1: yeah that's their goal. They ha- it's that one hot summer. They have to eat, uh, disperse, uh, find a mate. The re- most life has a goal of dispersal, just so that you can kind of mix genes and what have you. Um, so eat, disperse, uh, find a mate. Do the mating part <laughs> and then lay eggs and and then you can die, you know, knowing that you've passed your genes on to the next generation. So they do this in like a kind of a neat way because cicadas, how do you find a mate, right? Like who, how do you find a mate? How, like when you're, you're a new cicada, you've just emerged from the ground Um, well one of the ways that uh, they do it is with with noise so we when we think of cicadas I mean people have been writing about cicadas since the Iliad right since Homer like or or probably before but that's what I remember reading in high school people have been talking about the song right that you hear from cicadas and that song is actually has nothing to do with with us the song is male singing to try and advertise their kind of Um, sexual prowess their their genetic fitness uh, to females so that that way females which can hear they have a tympanum that they can hear with males and females can hear um, but females don't make noise Uh, females can pick up the sound and if if males are able to call like they especially if they call really hot times of the day or for really long durations the longer the call the better it's a sign right it's a sign of fitness because doing that's really metabolically expensive Um, it's hard on your body, and it's hard to do that when it's really, really hot, plus you risk, you know, drawing attention to yourself from predators and what have you, so it's a risky game to do it, but if you can do it, and if you can do it well, hey, that might mean that if a female mates with you, her sons will also be able to do that, and they will also get a lot of mates, Um, so it's kind of like an advertisement, like, of how um, fit or how well uh, the male is, so that females can use that as their criterion to kind of figure out they can find a makes they can go towards the sound. but They can also
0: figure out which mate to go for. So then the, once they have had all the babies, we were talking a little bit about like their strategy on like how many, like the babies there are so that like, you you know, hopefully don't get eaten like your brothers and sisters. And I think I was so overwhelmed with how just all the buggery that I couldn't really talk about it yet, but now I'm just circling back. So what was that all about? So they're either in the bark or they're in the ground, but like birds and like other things would just want to come be like, "Mm, yummy cicadas. And they'd eat all of them. They'd eat like, like how deep do they bury? Like, could you just go by a tree and like scoop a shovel down in like Illinois or Minnesota or Missouri or like Arkansas. And there'd be like a big old fucking brood of like (laughs) cicadas molting under there.
1: Well, they go pretty deep but i mean they don't go deeper than the roots right because they need to be able to be feeding on the rootlets or the roots of the trees or shrubs um but i mean i think the things that are i mean certainly they they can be you know infected by nematodes all sorts of things can happen to them when they're in the ground but it's when we think of them as as their strategy for predators, we're often thinking about them when they've emerged as adults. Because when they're an adult, uh, birds and and other things will come and consume them, including humans. I mean, lots of people eat cicadas. Um, they're tasty. If you fry them, they taste kind of nutty. Um, so I mean, they're an attract. They're like a good food source, um, or at least a tasty food source. I mean, I don't know how many you'd have to eat to get your recommended daily uh-huh. <laughs> takes for different things, but yeah. Yeah. A, a tasty food source. So, um, so their strategy of just kind of, um, uh, it's better to be in a buffet than be a single sandwich sitting out there. Right. Because they're more likely that people will pick other items and not you. Um, I guess it's kind of the strategy that they're using for the periodical. And,
0: and just like, in and, and numbers, like just, cause how much does like a mom, like how much, how much will like a brood be?
1: Well, so females lay around four hundred eggs so but not all of them are going to survive to adulthood but when it when the broods emerge, I mean there are thousands and thousands of individuals that come out, like thousands and thousands it's it's I feel like I'm underestimating it you know it's it's really, really huge numbers um and they tend to be rather localized so even though when you see them on the news or whatever, it seems remarkable but like it, in the state of new jersey we have several, we have a couple of different broods, but when there's a brood in northern New Jersey that's emerged. I don't see them at my house near Princeton. Like I have to drive to Northern New Jersey to see them. So the thousands and thousands, because that's their kind of local um, range for that, that brood.
0: So what's the one that's like really popping off in the news that we were reading about like a month ago or something. I I thought it was like West Virginia, maybe.
1: Yeah. There's one it's, it goes in West Virginia, Virginia, North Carolina. There's three States that it's in um, this year. So I think normally what we would have done is we would have driven to see them um as bug, you know bug lovers right but because of the virus you know we we figured it wouldn't be safe to do so um, but those are the ones I mean we've had a couple of years recently where broods that weren't supposed to emerge emerged early um so we have one that's going to be coming up in New Jersey in a few years and I wonder what the timing is going to be like because it's it's at it's like a temperature threshold so they have to molt to these five periodical cicadas have these five molts I think um And then when the temperature in their environment is, is I think it's 64, 65 degrees. I forget what the temperature is. um, Then that's the cue to emerge. But as you know, like with climate change uh, in a warming world, that clock is probably going to need to be recalibrated.
0: (laughs) Do we know like what that cue is? Like, what is it in them? that and, And I would assume that like, is that a similar cue that like butterflies get to like go into a cocoon or like a, or like a dragonfly or a damselfly gets to like, what are those, why do bugs know how to do that or insects know how to do that?
1: I think for, I mean, some insects are using light as a cue, you know, and day length as a cue. Um, some insects are using temperature as a cue uh, for sure. Sometimes it's, you know, there's other cues in the environment or food resource availability that's also can be a cue. Um, and some of it might be hardwired, you know, um, we're even in an abundance of, of food and, and warm temperatures Um, you know, they're still going to senesce, they're still going to die, you know, um, after a certain amount of time. Um, So uh, it can be a combination of things, I think, that they use. But I think it's a testament to how, you know, 400 million years of evolution has allowed insects to do a lot of very sophisticated things, right? And telling time as well as they can, you know, give or take four four years, (laughs) The yeah. time like that is actually very remarkable considering that their brains are not really brains. They're not like our brain. They just have these kind of clusters of ganglia, clusters of nerves. Um, but you're, they're able to use this to actually do very, I think, very sophisticated things.
0: I mean, obviously you are an incredible scientist. You're so just incredibly brilliant in your field. And I guess I just would love to take some time um, at the end. I should have done this at the beginning. I don't know why I didn't, but just like because I, I, I read a lot about like how you found this or you got to like confirm the presence of this cockroach in New Jersey, New York. Well, yeah, New, New York, New Jersey now. So what are some of like, what are just, I guess like if you would wanted to talk about like the chronologic or the chronologicalness of your career and like kind of it, just like, what are like some of the high points in, in the things that you've gotten to confirm or study or some of like your most exciting kind of stories from the job?
1: Oh, that's a good question. Um, I kind of think like at at the time when you're doing a project, it always seems like it's the most fun one. Like I don't think there's ever been a project where I thought, gee, this one wasn't very fun. I won't do that again. (laughs) Like each one seems like it's the most fun one. So we've done a lot of work. So Dragonflies, when I was first starting out, I can tell you this, Jonathan, I thought Dragonflies are so pretty. They're so colorful, like you can get, you know, any, so many different kinds of them. I'm sure every single dragonfly fact has already been discovered. So there's no sense in working on them because it's probably everything's already known. And then when I went to grad school, it turns out my advisor kind of set me straight and said, are you kidding? Like, (laughs) nobody works on dragonflies, really. There's very few of us that work on dragonflies, rather, I should say. So pretty much, you know, the sky's the limit. Just do what you're interested in. So we've kind of slowly been working through, the groups of dragonflies that are out there and trying to uncover their evolutionary history. And each time we do that, it's exciting because you get to figure out their morphology or if there's one dragonfly that disperses and has the whole world as its population, we found out that it migrates. We we confirmed with genetics that it kind of migrates across the globe Uh, and working on that was really exciting. But I kind of think, I mean, any of the projects have been, have been rewarding, Uh, because it
0: always... But how did you find out about that one? How did you find that they were all over the globe? Like, because like, so the dragonflies fly over the ocean?
1: Yeah, and saltwater is death, right? Saltwater is death for insects uh, in general, but dragonflies, you know, they have no tolerance to saltwater. They're freshwater insects. So uh, I, you know how I got interested in it? Because I was studying, um, you know, dragonflies and I got to go on a couple of collecting trips. And every time I went somewhere, I caught this thing, right? So I am African-American and I'd never been to the continent of Africa before. And there was a worldwide dragonfly meeting there in Namibia. And I was like so psyched, you know, for the culture to get to go and like catch African dragonflies, my heritage, my people on this continent. And then the first thing that I caught was Pantala, this thing, this global wanderer that I could get in New Jersey, like in my driveway. And I was like, that's, oh my gosh, that's funny. And then when I went to Australia, um, uh, that was also the first dragonfly that I caught. And so then it just started making me think, why is this everywhere? And because it's so common, people had overlooked it, I think, because things that are really common aren't that exciting maybe to study. But actually, the fact that it's so common is because it kind of does this exciting thing. And people had talked about it in the past. Um, you know, people had written about it in the mid-20th century. And, you know, people who lived in India and in the Maldives had had noticed that huge swarms of them would kind of show up at certain periods of time in the year. Um but it was really fun to use genetics um, uh, to try and confirm, you know, that because in order for the genes to be shared, naughty bits have to kind of interact, right? Like you have to share genetic information somehow, which means you have to be close enough to pass on that information. Yeah, you're
0: diddling, honey. Yes. Yeah. Yes.
1: As we call it the ingredients somehow. In so it's pass along the ingredients. Um, they have to be really close together, which means that the genetics kind of confirmed that whether we got them in South, America, or in Japan, or in, you know, West Africa, um, Australia, they all were kind of sharing the same genetic pattern.
0: And all of those Pantella dragonflies had the same genetic pattern?
1: Yeah, and we just we just submitted a new a new paper on this, but we actually collaborated with a with a colleague in Canada, where we looked at their, so the wings of dragonflies are formed while they're in the water but they're all just kind of crumpled up in the in the nymph in the nymph skin and then when they emerge uh then the wings kind of stretch out and you see like a typical dragonfly wing but you can look at the dragonfly wing and you can see where the origin was of that dragonfly because the hydrogen that's in the wings is from the h2o in which they were
0: babies so you can see
1: whether or not the dragonfly that you caught whether it was born in that region or not because the hydrogen actually weighs slightly different amounts depending on which part of the world you're in so anyways we did this study and it turns out almost all the dragonflies we tested were born in a different location than where we caught them which means they are moving they're moving
0: how do they do it on planes do they just literally fly over the ocean do they hitch a ride what is it
1: I think they, I mean, they are just really good at taking advantage of wind. So they're not like butterflies, you know, they're flapping constantly. They just kind of glide, you know, they're, they're very, they're very hip. They just kind of glide on the air and just coast, you know, over, over the ocean from land mass to land mass from rainy season to rainy season, um, which is, I think it's so neat.
0: Okay, wait, I think I interrupted you before and I didn't mean to. So what so you were studying? So you're studying, and then you're like, like, how did you start studying dragonflies when your advisor was like, wait, no, no one studies this? Like, where were you? Were you in college studying entomology? Yeah. Or were you?
1: Well, I wanted to do marine biology, but I went to university and I got, you know, turned on to insects and I loved it. And then this woman, uh, Diane Shavastava, she had a project in Costa Rica and she invited me to be her research assistant. So I went to Costa Rica and she worked on damselflies. And that was when I first sort of thought, oh, this would be so cool to work on, but it's probably already done. You know, that was kind of when I had that different uh-huh. attitude. Um and then I went to school to do biocontrol, like to do crop management, pest management, because I thought, well, you know, we need to secure humans food crops. You know, we need that. Everybody, it would be a human service. It would be great for society. Um, there's always jobs in, in integrated pest management. Um, it's a great career to go into. And so I had gone to university to, do, to grad school to do that. Um, And then I, around that time, I was like, Oh, I, I just don't want to do this. <laughs> this, isn't, this isn't fun <laughs> for me. I'd rather work on dragonflies. And luckily, uh, I was able to find an advisor there who was uh, who worked on dragonflies, and he was really encouraging. Mike May, and he said, "Like that's what he was the one of us." Like, girl, no. <laughs> like, there's a ton of unanswered questions for dragonflies, so you should study them. And that's when I did.
0: So, it with your um, because it's like cockroaches, damselflies dragonflies and then why can't I remember the fourth one termites Termites. what like what are the ones that are like because some are like cockroaches are typically not social bees we learned on how can we be less rude to bees like are super social so then like hornets are those those seem social those have a colony yeah they're and then Mm So I guess just of like of the ones that you study, like which ones are social and which ones are like, don't mess with me. I don't have any friends.
1: Dragonflies are just, don't mess with me. I'll actually eat your face because uh, they'll they'll cannibalize other dragonflies. Like they don't care at all. They will just eat anything. They're voracious. They're lions. Uh, the lions of the air. Um, then cockroaches are mostly like not social, um, but there is a group that's like a sub social. Roach that lives in wood—it's called Cryptocercus—and it kind of has overlapping generations, but it's not really tr- technically social; it's just subsocial. And then there are the termites, and those are the only ones that I study that are truly social. So they have kings and queens, and workers, um, and soldiers. But you guys learned about bees, and they're social for a very different reason. So the reason why termites—we think—the reason why they're social is because they consume cellulose; so they consume wood. And wood products, um, but they can't digest it. So they have to have these endosymbionts that live in their hindgut that break down the cellulose for them. Um, so they it would be like eating and eating and eating and not being able to get any nutrition unless you have these little things living in your gut. But every time they molt, remember we talked about like it rips your gut lining out. Um, so every time they molt, they lose that stuff in their gut that would digest their food for them. So they have to recolonize their gut with some way, but they don't have access to just random probiotic stores right so what they do is they go up to their nest mates and they drink anal secretions um it's called proctodial trophallaxis, and they um basically just imbibe this anal juice from a nest mate to re kind of colonize their the flora and fauna that live in their gut so that way they can digest their food so it wouldn't work if that was your strategy if you weren't close to another termite because you could molt and just be by yourself and then oh shit like you can't Uh, Get your gut, you know, you're not going to be able to digest your food. So, we think that that may be one of the reasons that has driven them to have social behavior is this kind of need to kind of recolonize their gut. I mean, there could be other reasons too, and also they tend to overlap if they're inside of, you know, a park or whatever. Um, But certainly their diet and that need to have their microbiome kind of sorted in order for them to get nutrition from their food, that's a big driver. So,
0: and then what about the damselflies? Are those will those kill a kill a friend too or are um, those friendly with each other?
1: No, they'll kill they they so as juveniles in the water, dragonflies and damselflies actually eat vertebrates. They'll eat tadpoles, they'll eat fish, small fish. Um, they don't care they will eat anything. Um, as adults, uh, you know, they eat, um, all sorts of, of other insects that eat each other. Um, and there's even like a couple of photos where it shows some of the larger dragonflies that actually have taken down a hummingbird. I've never seen that myself, but, um, some people say that those photos are real. Uh, so they, I mean, they're, they're good at catching things and they're, they're good at eating things. Um, they have these mouth parts that are kind of chewing mouth parts so they just, you know bring the food in and then poop it out the back. Um, you know, at the end, <laughs> that was actually my first job was looking the woman who I went to Costa Rica with. I was looking at poop. Uh, I looked at the damselfly poop and tried to figure out what they were eating.
0: <laughs> Where was the poop?
1: Well, um, Jonathan, sometimes you have damselfly poop, don't
0: you? And- Is it on trees or something? Or do you just find it on the ground or?
1: Well, she worked on a specific kind that lives, where the the juvenile stage lives in um, bromeliads, which is like a type of plant. Pineapples are bromeliads. So you know that little spiky thing at the top of a pineapple? Water collects in between those leaves. Insects actually live in the water. (laughs) And so she was collecting the water and the poop was in the water.
0: So what is the fucking nastiest fucking thing you have ever seen like studying bugs? Like what is like the... If you just ever but are you a scientist so you don't get grossed out? But if you weren't a scientist, like if you didn't have like your doctor, like you know, like like your pre-doctor and like when is like your like your inner child been like, this is so <laughs> fucking nasty. Or has that never happened?
1: No, I'd say it happens all the time. It happens all the time. So there's, you know, a group of us i think out there who are entomologists and who carry a secret shame because we actually are disgusted by members of insecta and i'm one of them so i i appreciate bed bugs so much i think they're fascinating they have traumatic insemination the males have a penis that's like a knife they stab the female like it's very very interesting but w- whenever i have seen one I feel like my skin is crawling and I feel itchy and I don't enjoy it. And I have friends who have colonies, like Lou Sorkin has colonies and he feeds them on his arm. I'm so impressed by him. But for me, I just can't be around him. He keeps them, them in his house. Well, I mean, now because of COVID, yes, but normally he keeps them at the, at the American Museum and they're fine. And he is, you know, he does all this interesting work with their behavior. It's so cool. As a scientist, I appreciate it. But then when are they social? Them, I feel sick. To my stomach
0: are bed bugs social no they're like not, how you they, said they just end up and the boys irrigating. dab, the girls i can't even talk about it right now i'll be i'll be talking about bed bugs for eighteen thousand hours but, <laughs> okay so so bed bugs are, have you ever seen something when you were like out like in the field doing stuff that was like super gross or disgusting
1: well um i shouldn't say this because it's going to make it seem like i'm actually scared all the time because i do have another one <laughs> so <laughs> you know uh For whatever reason, I kind of have like a little bit of a bugaboo about scorpions. Uh, They're not my favorite. They're arachnids. I can't imagine why. Yeah, they're not my favorite. They're arachnids. I know people who work on them, and they're really, really cool. But one time, it was actually that first time I went to Costa Rica with, with Diane, and we were cutting down a bromeliad that was up in a tree. So we were cutting it like this, and it was above my head. And we had done this a bunch of times and we were always worried there might be a snake inside. So we kind of rattled it a bit and no snake came out. If there's a snake, the snake usually comes out right away. So we're cutting this down like with this saw above my head. And she was just standing like kind of behind me. And she goes, Jessica, above you. And I'm like, yeah, of course I'm looking, right? But I don't see it. And she's like, no, no, no. Like, like above you, there's, there's scorpions. And I swear there was like 13 or 14 scorpions that just came piling out of this vermilion, falling all over me and I dropped the vermilion, and I screamed, and I thought, like, this is it. I'm going to get stung a bunch of times. I don't know which scorpions these are. Maybe they're centroides, I don't know what kind they are, and I felt, I felt bad. <laughs> I still feel bad about myself that I reacted that way, but honestly, because by the time I saw what they were, and they were pouring out on top of me, like, your eyes are, like, focusing. You see these scorpions kind of falling on you. I don't know. My hair's curly, too. I was like, oh, they're going to be all over me you Know, um, I didn't enjoy what
0: you do. Did you have to pick any off? Did you get stung? Did they all just kind of bounce off you?
1: See, this is where I end up looking kind of foolish, right? Because, of course, it's not like I got stung and I was fine and I shook them off me. Uh, I think I had Diane helped me, she, we were kind of just flicking them off me. Um, I jumped up and down a bunch of times, I ran around in a circle a bunch of times like a crazy person, and then. And then that was it. And I didn't get stung at all. So um, in the end, I guess maybe the message is that scorpions aren't that bad. But for some reason, even when I think about it, my stomach just goes in knots just thinking about that. It wasn't fun. Well, yeah.
0: I mean, I think that's just so human. So I mean, there is like a psychology to like, do etymologists ever study like, why is it that humans are just kind of naturally scared about bugs? Like, what is that creepy crawly thing that we get when we think about them? Um,
1: Yeah. Well, there's a woman, Vanessa. She's at Rutgers and she has a whole, she's a a psychologist and she, um, she studies, she like brings babies in and she exposes them to scorpions or snakes or whatever to see like when it is. And it's like a learned behavior usually from, from childhood that you learn to be afraid of, of insects and you're not necessarily born with an inherent dislike of them.
0: So I I don't know. My first, my first sentence was, my first full sentence was, I don't like (laughs) Nate's. Like, for snakes. Like, I was really scared of snakes. Sarah would, like, Sarah would it, be so disappointed. I, well, I'm sorry. So, I guess I didn't realize that, that scientists get disappointed in themselves and other people who want to learn about things when they get grossed <laughs> out by scary animals. But I guess that's more of the psychology of, like, why do we think that's scary? And I guess I think that is a really interesting thing to think about. Um, like, why do we have certain, I, I just, that's not really a question. I guess it's just, you know, interesting. So, this is Yogi Recess. We finally made it. Um uh also I just have to say like you're really just so incredible and I hope that uh this makes anyone else listening that is inspired by insects or wants to learn more and like chase their passions that you can have a really thriving career where you can do just that really like, you know, and and I think all there's just so many fields that are just so cool and and so full of of knowledge to be had that we just don't even know about so i just think that's so cool but well, so you. final question it's your uh, yogini recess um is there anything that we would be remiss to not mention about cicadas or uh, insects or um or you um or anything that you want to hit on that we didn't get to hit on it's your the floor is yours
1: oh that's exciting. First of all, thank you for saying such nice things. I do think that, you know, there sh- we should make more room for for different types of people in science. So I, I think it's really cool to get to, you know, I was said to my kids, like, oh, I'm worried. What if I am, seem like I'm a real square? Like, I'm not a fun person. And I do a bad rep for entomologists. And so my kids were like, um who wouldn't think you're a square? You were, of course, a square. All <laughs> entomologists are square. So even my kids think that. So hopefully I can, I can, I did a good, good rep for entomology. So, the only other thing I think that's kind of cool about dragonflies and damselflies that we didn't talk about uh, that I feel like I would be remiss to not mention is that um, males have two penises. So, unlike all of the other insects that we've talked about, um, you know, male dragonflies actually have a secondary set of genitalia at like, kind of near where their navel would be if you're picturing them in the proportions of a human. Um, and so they do indirect sperm transfer, like males basically. Uh, have this, they they ejaculate into the second penis, and then they use that second penis to transfer the ingredients, the the sperm to the female. And that's just so remarkable that they do that. And uh, they also, you know, females can store sperm. So she mates multiple times, and then she can choose which sperm she uses. So males don't want that, right? They want to make sure that their sperm is what she uses to fertilize her eggs. So this secondary penis is actually like a little spoon, and it scrapes out the previous male's sperm, and then they deliver their own sperm. So, I mean, when you think of dragonflies and damselflies, I think that's what got me so interested in working with them, was this reproductive race, right? Like females evolved to store sperm so they could make a choice over which male sperm they use. But then males evolved this little spoon to scrape out the previous male sperm. And so it's this kind of like uh, long-term fight over who gets to control, you know, the genes that are used for this for, for mating,
0: so can the girl's conveyor belt of sperm like be scooped up one so that the boy's secondary penis can't scoop it out, or can it always scoop out the previous person's sperm?
1: It can always scoop it out, and sometimes it looks like a little spoon, sometimes it looks like a claw, sometimes it looks like 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 a spock hand or something um and uh they they do it for like 20 minutes i mean sometimes they're scraping for like a very very long time and then the actual you know ejaculation is is much shorter so but females still have they don't always scrape out all of the sperm sometimes they also just displace the sperm so they just like kind of push like with a ramming rod kind of like push the sperm deep inside so that way it's less likely that she'll use it but i think that you know some some females are able to still, you know, make some type of choice uh, over which sperm uh, they use. They used to think it was last in, first out kind of model, but now they think that's not true, that they're still, you know, females are able to choose um, as their strategy, you know, which makes sense, right? She should be able to use whatever sperm um, is going to make her offspring the most fit. That should be selected for by natural selection, so.
0: Ah. Uh. Dr. Jessica Ware, I am so grateful for your time. I feel like I learned so many things. I just thank you so much. This is the most amazing episode. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: You've been listening to Getting Curious with me, Jonathan Van Ness. This week, we re-aired an episode from June 2020 with Dr. Jessica Ware. We'll be back next week with an all-new episode. You'll find links to Dr. Ware's work in the episode description of whatever you're listening to the show on. Our theme music is Freak by Quinn. Thank you so much to her for letting us use it. And if you enjoyed our show, honey, please introduce a friend and show them how to subscribe. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Curious with JVN. And for guest updates, behind-the-scenes videos, and news stories we're watching, make sure to follow that at Curious with JVN. Our socials are run and curated by Emily Bosick. Our editor is Andrew Carson, and our transcriptionist is Alita Vuncha. Getting Curious is produced by me, Erica Ghetto, and Emily Bossick.